0: Cause I would inevitably really, like slipped and fallen on one of these. So we're gonna just throw a couple of these out. Anybody? Somebody look alive. I don't know where that's going. I threw it up into the light. So good luck. Sorry if it hit you in the face. Um, So they say that 100 million people are probably going to view into tonight's game. Um, We're not going to do like, are you a Rams fan or are you a Bengals fan or whatever. I just want to ask one simple question though. Who here wants to watch the game, not because of the game, but because of the commercials, right? Commercial people. Yeah. Commercials are amazing. And it's always fun just to reflect on some of the most infamous Super Bowl commercials, uh, and it always seems to be like the beer brands that have like the most memorable commercials, like the Bud Knight or the Budweiser Frogs. Doritos always has some good ones, but I recently read an article that said that there is one brand that is now considered the most widely recognized logo and brand in the entire world, and I'll give you like three, four seconds to just shout out what you think it is. Okay, ready go. What's the most widely recognized brand in the entire world? Just shout it out. Go ahead, Go. Yeah. I don't know what she said. It was just like, blah, 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 but this is the world's most widely recognized brand in the world today. Now, I don't know how they determine this. I don't know, like scientifically, if it's a thing or whatever it is, but uh, logos and brands are powerful things, are they not? So we're going to do a little test here. We're going to show you three more logos, and I want to see how fast you can shout out the brand that it belongs to. Are you ready? Here's the next one for us. Right? Yeah, like Jeff Bezos is worth like $40 bajillion or something like that. But it's all in stock, so he doesn't pay taxes. You know, don't worry about that type of thing. Um, here's the next one for you. YouTube. So good. And then number three. Here we go. Nike, how many of you are wearing Nike something right now today, okay? Yeah, you got maybe some Nike shoes, Nike shirt, Nike jacket going on. I'm a huge Nike guy, I love Nike, but I don't discriminate. I also like Adidas and Under Armour and all that type of stuff as well, too. The history of the Nike logo is actually pretty interesting. There's this woman by the name of Carolyn Davidson. In 1971, she was a graphic design student. She went up to her professor, wanted to make a few extra bucks, and he said, "Well, I've got this guy by the name of Phil Knight, recently started this company called Blue Ribbon Sports. They make athletic shoes, uh, track shoes in particular, and he wants to rebrand. He wants a new logo. He wants a new name. Let's see what you can come up with. So she uh, completely comes up with a new name and a new logo, and she bills 17 and a half hours. And so she gets paid a whopping $35 for now a company for their branding and logo that's worth $34 billion. That's with a B today. That's pretty crazy if you think about it. It's a pretty good ROI if you're a businessman. You're like, how do I get into that game and that type of stuff? But it's interesting, though, because then it goes on, and Nike eventually, as years go on, they give her like a million dollars worth in stock to say thank you. But she had the idea of the name and the logo because of the Greek goddess Nike, who was oftentimes pictured with a crown of victory or a laurel wreath around their head. You see, in the ancient Middle East, they had Olympics every five to six years in three major cities. As soon as they got out of Rome, it was in Ephesus, Pergamum, and Smyrna. Now those names and those cities might sound familiar if you're following along with us in our teaching series through the seven churches of Revelation that we're in right now. And these uh, Olympics, like they didn't have like bobsledding or luge or curling. Like I think I could be like an Olympic curler. I don't know, but like pretty good with a broom if you ask me. But um, they would do running, boxing, wrestling. But the, 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 the true victory came, you would actually receive a crown of victory. And then with it came the spoils and the fame, so much so that whenever you went to a feast or a gathering, you got to sit next to the king. You got to sit with the queen. You got to have all of the, the spoils come to you. It was like it changed your life for forever if you received that crown of victory. And today's passage, as we're going through this teaching series, we're gonna see that idea of the crown of victory. Jesus is gonna talk about that. He's gonna to write to these Christians, he's gonna to write to this church saying, if you want a crown of victory, if you can endure this life, if you can suffer through a few things for my name's sake, you will receive a crown of victory waiting for you. And so if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Revelation. Now uh, that's our, our series will be here in the next couple of weeks. Uh, our scripture memory verse card for this series is new and updated so you can grab one of these from our four pickup stations where you also grab communion. Encourage you to memorize scripture. Uh, it's one of our values here, growing faith. We are prayerfully dependent and, and scripturally saturated or reverse those. I think I always get it backwards. Anyways, um, so we are going to continue in this teaching series but last week we started it off saying the seven churches are all kind of receiving like a review. Jesus is saying like, hey, here's where you're doing good. Here's where you're kind of off track. Let's kind of hone it in here. I encourage you in that. Keep it up in that area. And there's two main reasons that Jesus is going to review them. Their love for God and their love for others. But this is how we have a foundation for these seven churches. Revelation chapter 1 starting in verse 3. It's our memory verse. And then uh, verses 12 and 13. Follow along with me. It says these words. It says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and Take to heart which is what is written in it because the time is near. Verse 12 says then, so I turned around, this is the apostle John talking about this, to see that the voice was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone who was uh, like the son of man, as a reference to Jesus, dressed in a robe, reaching down with his, uh, to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest that said, Mrs. Congeniality. No, I'm just kidding. That part wasn't there. So here's the book of Revelation. Jesus had 12 closest friends, 12 disciples. 11 of them were killed. They were martyred for their faith except for one, and that was the apostle John. John was exiled to this island called Patmos, and he was left to die there. They just kind of abandoned him. And while he was on this island by himself, he received a vision from the Holy Spirit, and he begins to write it down. Now, when we talk about the book of Revelation, sometimes we think of it as mythology, or it's just made up, or it's allegory. doesn't really mean anything, and that couldn't be further from the truth. That The book of Revelation was actually written, and especially chapters 2 and 3, these letters to the seven churches were written down, and then they were passed to these churches. It was written, so then, to real cities with real churches, real Christians needing real correction for their life and their faith. Because when we read something like Revelation that we sometimes don't really know what to make of it, it's kind of like, well, do I believe it? Do I push it off to the side? Do I not listen to it? And so this is where the golden rule of hermeneutics, that's just a fancy way of saying Bible study, that needs to come into play, and it's this. It's that the original audience received a meaning and we can glean from it even though it was not written to us. So we say it this way, that the Bible was not written to us today in America in the twenty twenty. Two is the year that, that we're in, uh, and, but it was written for us. As Christians, we can glean from it. And it cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. And so here's John. He's saying, I have this vision, these seven golden lampstands, and Jesus is standing among them all. The seven golden lampstands, they represent the church, the hope, the peace, the light in the dark place that the church is called to be. And Jesus is holding them all together. And throughout this series, we'll see this distinguished mark for a church that is doing its job well. It's this, it's that they have a genuine passion for God seen through a love for the word, the Bible, and a love for others. Jesus standing among these churches because he loves them. He cares deeply about the church. He wants the church to be its best for the sake of his kingdom, for the sake of his glory, for the sake of the world. And that's essentially what the church exists to do is to worship God. Now, worship is not just when we sing songs, even though that's sometimes how we use the phrase, but you know that, that worship is any time you express a love for God or a love for others that comes from your love for God. So that means when you pray, when you study, when you shovel your neighbor's driveway, that is an act of worship because you are expressing this love for God. And these seven churches are experiencing an attack on their worship because Satan is subtle. He wants the church to not worship. Perhaps I can get you to not worship God. Perhaps I can get you to treat others poorly, even though you might be cool with God or whatever. And so Satan is attacking the church, trying to get these Christians to to change their worship. And there's three attacks we see throughout Revelation, these seven churches uh, here. And number one is he tries to get them to divert their worship. Meaning he tries to get churches to focus on an aspect or a pillar of faith, but not the others. Perhaps I can get you to love God and that's okay, but maybe at the same time too, I can get you to treat your neighbor poorly. Or maybe I can get you to treat others well, but you're never going to let Jesus actually be Lord of your life. That's an attack. That's a way in which Satan tries to divert our worship. Say, take this, divert, and not take the other. Sometimes Satan will try to distort worship. Take something that's maybe small and make it a big deal. It's when we become aware of something but don't actually do anything with it. We perhaps become indifferent. Satan tries to distort our worship and make it into things that's not meant to be. And if all else fails, there's another tactic that he tries. And he says, well, if I can't get you to divert or distort your worship, maybe I can just get you to give up your worship, to neglect it all together. And so as we study and we look at the church in Smyrna this morning, that's the tactic that Satan's trying to use. Well, clearly you haven't diverted or distorted your worship, but maybe through suffering and persecution, I can get you to neglect your worship altogether. Revelation chapter two, verse eight, follow along with me. Here we go. It says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. And we're gonna pause there. We made it super far this morning so far. If we're going to follow Jesus well, that verse, to him who is the first and last Jesus, Alpha Omega beginning and the end, it is vitally important to our faith and our theology that we understand and know that particular verse arguably above all else. Well, why? If you think about it, all of history revolves around Jesus, whether it's church history or not. We we mark our calendar years based on Jesus. All throughout history, antiquity points back to that era of Jesus' life as a central part, a pin that everything else finds perhaps its meaning or its timeline based on Christ. You see, the biggest argument about Jesus is not, was he real or not? People who don't believe in, in, in Jesus as their savior will still believe that Jesus was in fact a man. History in antiquity shows us that at a minimum... Jesus was in fact a guy who lived and a guy who died. So the question isn't, was Jesus real? The question isn't, did Jesus live and die? The question is, do you believe he rose again? That's the question. That's what Jesus is saying. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I am who I said I am. I am author, creator, sustainer, savior of this entire world. Everything revolves around me. I am the promised Messiah for thousands of years. It was prophesied about me. And I told you I was coming. I told you I was going to come for to save the world, to love the world. I'm going to live a perfect life. I'm going to tell you I'm going to die. And by the way, I'm going to pull it off by coming back from the grave. See, the biggest hurdle with Jesus is not was he real. It's is he Lord of your life? That's the big question that revolves around this verse. And if you were to ask me, Eric, why do you believe in the Bible? Why do you trust the Bible? Why do you preach the Bible? Why do you change your life around the Bible? It's not because the Bible says so. That's circular reasoning. That doesn't make any sense. The reason I trust and I believe in Scripture is because it points me to Jesus. Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I've seen how Jesus impacts my life. I am aware of my sin, the need for a savior, his grace, his power. History and antiquity points to this fact that, that, that Jesus had to be much more than just a liar or a lunatic. And it points to the fact that he had to be Lord. He called his death, he called his resurrection, he pulled it off. I trust scripture because it tells me about the man that everything points to in this word. You ever try to take advice from someone who, you don't, who doesn't know what they're talking about? You're like, yeah, that's what parenting is. I believe there's two groups of people who, um, who hate Google. Doctors and car mechanics, which are pretty much just car doctors, right? Like, 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 imagine just being a doctor this day and age. You go and you got a rash on your arm and they kind of look at, oh, maybe you just, you, 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 uh, you got a new fabric softener and it's like, yeah, but I plug my symptoms into Google. Instead, I might have cancer. So which is it, Doc? It's like, well, do you want to believe me or do you want to believe Google? I think car mechanics, same thing, right? You ever try to tell your car mechanic what's wrong with your vehicle? Even though like not knowing, well, you know, like I put it into gear and then like as soon as I get up to, like, to 20 miles an hour, it makes this sound and then I get a little faster and it gets a little deeper. But then when I, when I come to a stop, it makes this sound. Like you ever been there before? and You don't really have no idea what you're talking about. And so he pops his uh, head under the hood and he's, and he's looking around and then he maybe just comes, oh, it looks like, a, I don't know, maybe your, uh, your, your power steering fluid's got a leak. Well, I put the car symptoms into Google and it said that the front axle, rear differential head gasket line converter might be out. It's not a thing. I just made that up. But we do this, right? Like why would you ever receive insight? direction from someone who is not an expert. The people who created your car, spent a lot of time, really, really smart people said, this is how you drive. This is how you maintain a vehicle. This is how you prolong its life to make sure that it functions as best as you can. You don't get just to wake up one day and say, you know what I've decided? Transmission fluid is for the birds. It's a conspiracy. They're just trying to sell us that pink stuff. So I'm just gonna get rid of it altogether. That'd be foolishness. And that's what this verse means that Jesus is the expert of life. He's the expert of life. Beginning and end, first and last, alpha and omega. Jesus did two things you or I could never do. He lived a perfect life and he rose from the grave. I hear that's pretty difficult if you try to pull that off yourself. He's the expert of life because he did this whole living thing perfectly that we do not. He's the expert of life because he is God. He's the son of man. He's part of the triune God. He is the expert of life because he created all of this you and I. He is the manufacturer. He wrote the instruction manual. He gives you the rules of how to live this life because he is the expert. Thus, therefore, if you believe Jesus is who he said he was, beginning and end, son of the living God, savior of this world, then whatever he says next, you should probably listen. No matter how much it hurts your feelings, no matter how much it kind of goes against what you think, whether you want to argue or not, it sounds good, it would be wise to listen. And this is what he says to this church facing suffering and persecution. This is what he says next, picking up in verse nine. He says, so I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. See if you can figure out why they are rich in the next couple of verses. I know about, uh, about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. We'll get into this in a second. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and it will give you life as your victor's crown. Verse 11, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. The ancient city of Smyrna was gorgeous, they say. Big, powerful, prestigious. They said there was like almost this level of pompousness that you needed to have to live there. And so much so that the ancient Homer lived there, not Simpson, the poet, So there was a level of sophistication that needed to live there. But Smyrna was also known for something else. So there was a lot of strife and tension because everyone was trying to one-up one another. There was also a place known for suffering and death. So much so that the city, they said, smelt. Smyrna became uh, uh, known for this sweet-smelling spice that was used to embalm people after they had passed away. So get this. The city that was known for suffering and death has a church that is facing suffering that potentially leads to death. And there's something interesting going on. So these Jews and this synagogue are saying, what's kind of going on here? First and foremost, let me just say this. Jesus is not an anti-Semite. The apostle John was Jewish. He's not an anti-Semite, but here's what's going on in the ancient Middle East. And so, so in that time, you had to worship the, the emperor Nero or, or whoever the, worship, the emperor was uh, domination, you fill in the blank. And you had to burn incense to them and offer them taxes and tithes and all of that type of stuff. But if you were Jewish, you got absolved from that. There was this legal protection because they were kind of like, well, you guys were here before us, you existed before us, and so you don't actually have to do this. And the Jews were like, all right, this is tight. Back in that time, Christianity was seen as a subgroup of ancient Judaism. And so Christians had those legal protections because they were kind of like the Jews. I guess they were like, I don't know, you guys kind of believe in the same God. You have that Old Testament thing. So yeah, we'll just consider. And the Christians were like, great. Then the Jews took offense to that. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa Christians, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. But you guys don't believe what we believe. We have one major thing. You know that whole Jesus cat? You guys think he is who he said he was. You believe that he was the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the the promised Messiah of the entire world, and we don't. He was a good rabbi. He taught us a few things. And so if you want to be in, if you want to have our protections, you have to renounce Jesus as Messiah. And so the church in Smyrna was faced with persecution. What do we do? Do we just take this one little aspect and get rid of it? Jesus just said he was first, last, beginning, and end. Do we just kind of push that aside and maybe internally we just know to ourselves, okay, we're just gonna say outwardly that's not what we believe, but internally we do? You gotta make a choice publicly. You need to declare who is Jesus. And if you say that you believe who he says he is, first and the last, that he died and rose from the grave, that protection is gone. That requirement to worship another God, another man is now placed upon you. The choice is yours. In some way, the church in Smyrna was facing double persecution. The religious cousins from the the Jews were kind of kicking them out, and the societal hardships of worshiping someone other than the emperor. And the correction they receive isn't really correction. It's just a warning. Jesus just says persecution is coming. Now, what we need to understand about persecution back then, it's not sometimes how we use the term today. See, persecution back then literally meant there's a good chance your business will be taken from you. There's a good chance we will burn down your house or your building. There's a good chance we will take your life or your family from you, perhaps both, if you believe this. And Jesus says, you're going to have to suffer for 10 days. Some say, is this a 10 days reference to actual 10 days? Some say perhaps it's a, it's a reference to the prophet Daniel and the 10 days in which, which they absolve from the king's food. Either way, it's a short period of time that you will suffer. But notice the one thing that Jesus never says about this persecution. He never says to these Christians, oh, by the way, don't worry about it. I got your back. Well, don't worry about it. Like, if they come for you, you're going to have like this invisible force fuel about you, and no one's going to be able to get into your house. He says, no, 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 you're just going to have to endure the suffering to the point of death for some of you. Let me be the first to remind us we're not in an ancient Asia Minor. Let me be the first to remind us we're not the ancient church in Smyrna. Let me be the first to kind of remind you persecution is not coming for us probably anytime soon. Now, sure, we may have hardship as Christians today. There may be some tensions. You may have some relational strife. There may be some, some morally tough choices that you have to make and balance. But that's not the persecution being talked about here. So what do we glean from this? What do we glean from a text from a passage about persecution in a way in a matter in which we will probably never face it and experience it? I have a couple thoughts for us this morning. Number one, it's that persecution is real. Just because we don't face it and experience it today in our country, in our city, in our towns, doesn't mean that it's not already here and alive in the world around us. Persecution is very real, because there is a war going on for the souls of every single person. There's a war going on for this world in which God wants to win, Satan wants to stop to, to, to stop it, and so persecution exists, because sin and flesh don't like Jesus' glory and majesty being on display. Let me give you an example that you might not be aware of of how you potentially, on a regular basis, support people who are facing persecution. We have a missionary couple. Their names are Abraham and Kamala. They're in the country of Nepal. Now, we can't tell you a whole lot about them because this is online. We can't tell you their last name. We can't show you pictures. We can't give you the title of their ministry. But on a day-to-day basis, today and tomorrow and the next day, they face the threat of losing their life, of losing their buildings, of their family being taken from them because they proclaim that Jesus is Lord. And it's amazing, we get these, we get these uh, updates from them, we get pictures. This past month alone, they've started and planted four churches, raised up four pastors, and they saw 97 people in the past month alone give their life to Jesus as a result of their efforts. Yeah, clap it. That's a, that is absolutely unbelievable, 97 people. And we'll get these emails from them, they'll share us pictures, they, they run a, a street boys ministry, dozens upon dozens of homeless boys that they take care of, but we'll receive notes that say something like this. Thank you for your support. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for your prayers. The spirit is moving. Pray for this pastor because he is in prison for the next month and a half. Pray for this pastor because his building was beat down because they were worshiping Jesus. And they're not saying pray for our protection. They're just saying give, pray for the spirit to give us this steadfastness, this ability to endure and push through because we believe that the gospel, the power, the kingdom of God cannot be stopped. There're two things that we can do even though we won't probably face persecution. Is number one is you can give. When you give to our church, well over 10% goes out to places and ministries and partners like that. That's the first thing. But the second thing is we can pray. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, we are united. People would ask, hey, what's going on with the impact room out here? You know, why, you know, we're going to make a few changes, bringing some soft seating in. But one of the things we're looking to do is to bring information for how you can be regularly praying for our mission partners, both locally and abroad, because we believe in the power of prayer. And I don't want to be the type of church where we just say, you should go pray. We're going to do it right now. So I'm going to ask if you would pray with me, along with me, for just just a few moments as we lift up these mission partners and the people across the globe uh, who are facing persecution. So let's pray here in the middle of, of this sermon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We are just blown away by perhaps the freedoms and the liberties we have here in this country, in this city, to worship you freely and openly And may we never take that for granted, but right now we want to lift up the brothers and sisters in your name, in your family, in your kingdom, who on a regular basis experience that real persecution. Give them that steadfast spirit. Give them the reminder of that crown of life waiting for them. And God, help us to know just a little bit of how that impacts us, of what we can do to be one family united in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Be with them today and tomorrow and, and everything that's coming their way that they can expand your kingdom for your glory. Turn in that we pray. Amen. That's the first thing. Persecution is real. Number two, it's that persecution propels the church. Throughout history, you can see this, whether it's in modern-day China or Korea, parts of the Middle East, or India, that whenever a government or or a nation tries to outlaw Christianity, it pushes the church further. You might ask, well, why does that happen? Why does persecution actually do the exact opposite? I believe it's of two things. Number one, it's because it forces Christians to scatter. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus says to the apostles, you're going to take this gospel, this good news, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But that doesn't actually happen until persecution comes to them under emperor Nero, and they have to scatter, find new communities, new homes, new relationships. Whenever persecution comes, it forces Christians to scatter and hopefully take their, with, their faith with them to new places and new people. But I think it does a second thing. It forces you to decide, do you really mean this or not? Persecution forces you, do you want to be in or not? Because you can't be half in, half out. You're either all the way in or you're all the way out. Because when push comes to shove, are you actually going to be willing to lose your life for the sake of Jesus if you don't truly take it seriously? If you're not all in, if you don't rely on him for your source of strength. Now when I read about persecution, whether it's in scripture or history, I ask myself one question, it's how do they endure? I mean, how do they do this? How do they find the strength to push forward in the midst of suffering? And if you take notes or if you do kind of our, our, our sermon note homework and whatnot, you're going to see this very clearly through all the passages we've given you for this week, but you'll see this one truth come to the forefront. It's that they look forward to heaven. That anyone who endures through persecution and sufferings because they look forward to heaven, and might I add, they look forward to heaven more so than the things of this life. That Jesus is their value, their hope is the gospel, their identity is in the kingdom of God. In in, in chapter two, verse 11, it ends with this thing, you will not experience the second death. And what that is saying is there's a choice that every single person must make, and here's what that choice is. Is every single person has a choice that you can either be born twice and die once, or you can be born once and die twice. Let me explain it to you you have been born. You're here today, someone birthed you, congratulations, you did nothing, but here you are today. Everyone will be born, but then you are faced with a choice, and that choice is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that you are a sinner needing to repent of your sin to accept the love and grace of Jesus Christ? Through his life, his death, his resurrection, he has paid the price and invited you into his family. If you believe that and you receive that good news and that gospel, you die of your old self and you are born again. John chapter three, we, you may have heard that phrase, you are born again and then this life will pass. This body will die and you will spend eternity worshiping God and that's it. Or you reject that gospel. You are born once and then when this life passes, you will face a second death a spiritual death in which you die and you are separated from God for all eternity. How do you endure suffering? It's to remember, you look forward to heaven, that this life is the only life that I will die if I follow Jesus Christ, that this life is but a blip in the radar because I know eternity is waiting for me. Let me give you this illustration, this example here. This morning, I'm gonna have one of the cameras zoom in on and see if we can capture this. And so, but here's what we're gonna say here's a little stack of note cards here. Let's just say this represents eternity. Now, I know it should be like, it shouldn't end, Eric, if it's eternity, but follow along with me. And on one of these cards, I have placed a red dot. Now, I'm not a magician, so my sleight of hand isn't really good, but here's what I'm gonna do I'm gonna flip through this and I want you to just see if you can pick up on the red dot. You ready? Here we go. All right. That's good. Camera. Okay, here we go. Look for the red dot. You see it? No, because I did it backwards. Sorry, that's on me. Flip it around. All right, let's try that again. Try it again. Here we go. Let's see if you can catch the red dot. See it? We'll do it one more time. One more time for you. All right, pay attention. Here we go. You see it? That red dot? That's your life. Here today, gone tomorrow. It's about a blip. A puff of smoke. In the grand scheme of eternity. But here's also the truth. Just because it's short, it's minuscule, in eternity scope, it doesn't mean your life is insignificant. While that red dot may be quick, while that red dot might be small, while that red dot might kind of not even be visible, it has eternal implications. And those who endure through the suffering and persecution for the sake of Christ, I think they know that. Yeah, it's hard, yeah, it's difficult, but man, look what is waiting for me. My life is but that red dot. To those Christians in ancient spirit, to the Christians today around the globe, they're able to withstand suffering and persecution, I firmly believe because of that one truth that heaven is waiting for me and I will only die once. I've been born twice, so I know that I will only die once. And here's where I want to close for us this morning. What do we glean from this? I believe it's this. It's while we probably won't need to be faithful to the point of death, we are called to be faithful nonetheless. Let me say that one more time. While you and I might not ever be called to be faithful to the point of death for the sake of Jesus... We are called to be faithful nonetheless. The question is maybe never going to be will you endure through suffering or persecution? But I think we can ask ourselves would I? Would I? Now, that's not really fair because we don't really face it here and now, but let's play this out. Would you? Would I, I'll just talk about myself and maybe you can track and follow along with me. Would I actually endure through suffering, through persecution for the sake of Jesus Christ? Now, I like to think I would. I like to think that I have an identity so rooted in Jesus Christ that even if they took my wife, my kids, even if they made it illegal or said, if you get up and onto that stage and preach the gospel that Jesus is the only way, truth, and life, we are taking your life from you. Eric, would you actually still do that? I like to say that I would. But there's also a dose of reality that I have to check myself with. Is Sometimes I have a hard time pushing back comforts to be with Jesus more. Sometimes I have a hard time getting out of bed, Set an alarm a little early. Sometimes I get a little distracted. Sometimes I get a little selfish with my money. Sometimes I get a little selfish with my time or how I prioritize certain things. If I can't push back some comforts to be more with Jesus, would I really push through persecution to worship him? I don't know. I don't know what that looks like for you. I want to ask you this simple question. What does faithful look like for you in your context? Your family, your job, your neighborhood. Maybe to be more faithful in prayer. Not just saying you're gonna pray, but actually do it. And believe in its power and how it unites us together and how you can pray for for God to be more real in your life. How you, you can pray to receive and feel that grace that he gives to you. Pray for the persecuted brothers and sisters. Pray for your elders, your church leaders. Pray, 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 pray. Maybe it's to be more faithful and living generously. God calls us to tithe, to trust him, to know that his kingdom is pushed forward and grows and is impacted when we are faithful and generous to others. Maybe there's a faithfulness to your own family. Maybe you're around, but you're not active. Maybe there's a faithfulness in in, in how you set examples for your kids. Do you pray with them? Do you read your Bible along with them? Do you teach them what it means to love God and to love others? Maybe there's a coworker, a friend, a neighbor who, and a simple invitation to church, could change the red dot. I don't know what it is for you, but I guess there's something. What does it look like for you to be more faithful in your context moving forward where does your identity lie what are you looking forward to most is it things of this life or is the eternity that is waiting for you after that first and only life do you make decisions based on this red dot or based on this entire life waiting for you to worship god as lord and savior I'm gonna invite you all to stand with us this morning as we continue to worship. So if you would make your way to your feet and we're gonna sing out to God. And I wanna just say, remember we get to do this freely, publicly, openly. Don't hold back these truths. Don't hold back that worship. It is a gift and it is a blessing It should never be lost upon us. Would you continue to worship with us this morning?